Okay, okay. So today I want to talk about the transfiguration, um, uh, which has been on my mind a little bit because I've been writing a very exciting essay about Caesarea Philippi and the exchange between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus says, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Messiah. Because uh, shortly after that is the transfiguration. Um, and lots of people think that happened on Mount Tabor. Um, but a lot of people also think that it happened on Mount Hermon, which is right above Caesarea Philippi. So I've been kind of reading around that area of scripture a lot. Um, and so that's where the transfiguration happens. So we're going to be reading from Matthew 17. Uh, I will start in verse 1. It says, After six days, Jesus, uh, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Uh, so this is, I think, one of the more eerie kind of supernatural encounters that Jesus kind of, that the disciples have with Jesus. They head up this mountain uh, and Jesus, his face shines like the sun. It's pretty insane. Uh, and Moses and Elijah turn up. So Moses and Elijah, um, they kind of represent the law and the prophets. Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, they are the... the um, the, the representatives of all that has come before now. They're the representatives of everything in the Old Testament. They're the representatives of the Old Covenant. And they are here to now bear witness to Jesus. And they are here now at this transfiguration to submit themselves to Jesus, who will f fulfill everything that they laid as a foundation. So Jesus fulfills all the law and all the prophets and that's why um, he's kind of invited these two witnesses to be here at this uh, special occasion. Uh, so Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Um, you know, like there's always in a social group, there's that one person who just can't cope when there's silence. And they would just have to say something. It's like this incredibly reverent, amazing moment where Moses and Elijah are there and Jesus is shining like the sun and Peter's like, I have to say something. Um, he just, he has to, he's just so impulsive in this regard. But more than that, he's saying, I want to do something that will make this last forever. This is it. This is everything that Peter has signed up for. When, Jesus, when Peter's like, I'll die for you. When Peter's like, I'll climb out of the boat and try to show his faith. And when Peter is saying, Jesus, you know, I'm going to be with you. This is what he's picturing in his mind. It's Jesus radiant like the sun and Moses and Elijah on top of a mountain. And he's going to build them a, a tent each so that they can stay there and not leave. I reckon when he's finished with the three tents, he'll build a war room uh, because that's what Peter has signed up for. He's like, finally, we're getting to the, to the juicy bit of this. He's getting ready for the conquest. We're going to finally take over Jerusalem. We're going to wipe out the Romans. We're going to establish this new kingdom that Jesus has been talking about. Because you see, Peter still doesn't get it. Just as much as Peter can say, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. He, you know, a few verses after that, Jesus is rebuking him and saying that... Um, um, that he's the devil, you know, like, so Peter still doesn't get it. And he thinks that this moment of transfiguration is the beginning of a militant, triumphant, uh, you know, kind of kingdom of God. Uh, in, in, in Luke's 
um, sto- uh, account of this in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, 33. He literally says, Peter did not know what he was saying. <laughs> like he's like, I just, I just got to record explicitly, Peter is a total numpty. That's what, <laughs> that's what the, uh, the Greek there really means. Um, he's a numpty. So straight away though, his plans are dashed. So we're in verse 5, Matthew 17. While he was still speaking, so he hasn't even finished his sentence, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. And with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Actually, there's an, an exclamation mark uh, in the English there. I don't know. I don't know how they do emphasis in the original language. But it says, Listen to him. Just in case you are hard of hearing, listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. See, up until now, glowing Jesus, uh, Elijah and Moses, and Peter's pulling out his tool belt. But now God has spoken and he says, listen to my son. I don't know if you've got to the point with your kids, those of you who are parents, where you yell at them and you say, listen to me. Because you're like, I am so done. I, I don't know that the God was quite like that. But it's explicit here. Pay attention to Jesus. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. They saw no one except Jesus. So Moses, Elijah, they're gone now. You see, the old covenant, the old rules, the old law and prophets, gone now. The time of the law and the prophets had come to a close and the time of the kingdom of God was at hand. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So just in case there is any confusion for you about who is the person we listen to when it comes to theology, when it comes to ethics, when it comes to principles, when it comes to uh, giving, when it comes to also any area of expertise... The one that we listen to chiefly and foremost is going to be Jesus, not the law and the prophets. If there is any confusion about whose opinion or tradition or practice is most valid, it should be clear here that Jesus supersedes everything that came before him. Listen to him. The law and the prophets testified about Jesus, but the disciples must take their lessons directly from Jesus. See, Moses calls for the stoning of a sinner, but Jesus calls for he who is without sin to throw the first stone. And Elijah calls fire down from heaven when he doesn't want to go to a meeting. That's what I should do when I get a message. Someone says, can we, can we catch up? And I'm like, ah, oh, actually, I don't really want to make it. Just call fire from heaven. Um, but Elijah calls fire from heaven and Jesus calls us to love our enemies. There are many things in the Bible that we rightly call biblical that we cannot call Christian. Let's try that again. There are many things in the Bible that we can call biblical, but we cannot call them Christian. Uh, Brian Zand, um, who I've um, been doing a bit more reading, we're in the Lent kind of period. So Brian Zand is really keen on the liturgical calendar, the church traditions and um, so I've been reading a bit more of him during this season and, um, and just blatantly stealing his ideas because he's, he's brilliant. Uh, he, he says this, he says, Wars of conquest, capital punishment, violent retribution, the institution of slavery 
and women held as property are all biblical. That when seen in the light brighter than the sun shining from the face of Christ, everything must be reevaluated because Jesus is what God has to say. Uh, and, and like I said, this is our, our week to talk about money, so this is where I'm going to shoehorn that in. Uh, tithing is exactly like that. The New Testament simply does not teach tithing. And if you go to a church that teaches tithing, they are teaching from Moses and Elijah and they are explicitly ignoring Jesus and ignoring the New Testament. Jesus says that the Pharisees who are still under the law, that they should tithe because they are under the law, but he never once suggests that Christians should be tithing. And the early church also did not teach tithing. Here is what Jesus, uh, in his, the, 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 the centerpiece of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, what he has to say about money. This is in Matthew 6, 19 to 24. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, uh, and if you have a, a study Bible or something, it'll tell you at this point, the word healthy in Greek here uh, implies very heavily generous. This, is, this, this, this thing about the eye being the lamp of the body is sandwiched between two little stories about money. The first one is store up treasures. Uh, in heaven, not on earth, where it can't get ripped off or eaten. And then he says, if your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, and again, the implication here is stingy. If your eyes are stingy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, you know, Jesus talked about money a lot, but his policy on money was, is don't worry about tomorrow. Just look after today. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies in the field. Don't worry about tomorrow. You need to store up treasure in heaven and don't be stingy. And, and then this section in the middle, where he's talking about the eye being the lamp of the body, he's saying... Actually, if you were stingy, that corrupts your whole life. But if you were generous, that blesses your whole life. This is what um, Paul had to say to the Corinthians. Because the early church didn't teach tithing, it taught generosity. It taught joyful generosity. This is in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. I love this. We reap what we sow. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you're stingy, your whole life becomes stingy. Your whole life becomes darkness. Because if you, if you reap uh, stinginess, then you will sow stinginess. And then the same is true if you if you are generous, then you will reap generosity. Now, this isn't saying that if you give, you'll get lots of money back in return. That's just not how it works. But it's a principle at work here. It's saying if you're a generous person, you're going to be have a more generous life. And if you're a stingy person, you'll have a more stingy life. 
But that doesn't insulate you against um, things going wrong. But as a general principle, if you're a joyful person, you're probably going to have to have 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 wow, have a happy life. Uh, but if you're a grumpy person, you probably won't be as happy. It's a general principle here. But here's the thing. Often in churches, and I think we, you know, like, this is why we don't talk about money super frequently because I don't want to do this, but it's pretty easy to manipulate people, make them feel bad, give a good sob story, I don't know, show some ministry or cause that you're giving to and, help and, and you know, make people... Make people bleed. You know, like I've been to meetings where, where they like, where they just pressure you and pressure you and pressure you um, to give, where they manipulate you. You see, when you give and you're bitter about it, when you've been manipulated to give and you're bitter about it, the problem is, is you go home later and you don't reap joy from that generosity. You go home later and you're like, they, they really manipulated me and you reap more bitterness. So even though you gave a lot, the fruit of that is that you are even more bitter later when you think about how they manipulated you. Because we reap what we sow. But if you give joyfully, then I think later on, you don't feel bad about that. You feel good about that. So you will continue to, to reap joy from that. If you give more than you actually want to, or more than you feel compelled to by the Holy Spirit, not by some clever speaker, then you'll likely be bitter. And if you give less than you are compelled to, this is also the danger. If in your heart you know that, that, that God is speaking to you and, and God is saying, you know what, you're actually a bit stingy and I really want you to be blessed by being able to give and be generous and you refuse to do that, then later on you are going to reap from that. You'll reap a, a, a sense of guilt and a sense of shame because you didn't give in the way that God asked you to give. So it goes both ways. You can give too much or too little and in both of those situations you can either, you know, you can end up um, feeling bitterness because you reap what you sow. If you sow in joy, you reap in joy. If you uh, sow in bitterness, you reap in bitterness. And if you sow in guilt and shame, you will reap guilt and shame. Don't give out of guilt or shame. Uh, so the, the way we do giving, and, and we have a pledge that we ask people to fill out that doesn't have your name and isn't a contract in any way. It's a way for you to go away and with your partner, if you're in a relationship or if you're by yourself, to honestly just say, what am I prepared to give? God, how should I give? What does it mean for me to be generous, but also to be responsible? What does it mean for me to do there and to make a commitment to do it? And we ask people to give electronically because uh, administratively it's easier, uh, but also because you can then set up a regular thing so that you don't have to have that challenge and conversation with yourself every single time you go to give i've set aside in my heart how much i'm going to give and i do every week like clockwork i don't think about it anymore i've already set that money aside in romans 12 verse 6 it says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us if your gift is prophesying then prophesy in accordance with your faith if it is serving then serve if it is teaching then teach if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Uh, so we don't ask that people give a certain percentage of their income as some kind of obligation. Uh, we just ask people to give generously of their talents, of their time and of their finances. Um, because when Jesus talked about this, he didn't just say all these other things. He was explicit about money as well. Thanks.
Jonah for that uh, delightful rendition on the drums. Um, <coughs> here's the other thing, though. I hate the language that people use in church about money when we talk about tithes, because tithing's nonsense in the New, uh, in the New Testament church. Uh, but I also hate it when we say it's a donation. What a lot of rubbish. You don't make a donation to the lunch project. You pay for your food. You know what I mean? You're not making a donation to get coffee. I'm... We spend more money on coffee and food than you guys put in. You, you are actually making an investment. If you want to eat, then you're making an investment in that. If you want to drink nice coffee, not nice cafe, then you're making an investment in that. And the same is true of this community. Any other um, thing that you're a part of in your life, you have to contribute something financially to reap a benefit from it. So I, I like to think of giving a church as more like a farmer investing in the ground. He does it because he wants a crop. We invest in this together because we like what happens. We enjoy getting together. We enjoy that there is a place we can meet uh, and that there is someone who organizes and does all the admin for us and cooks us a meal and shares with us a message and uh, facilitates worship and is there if we pastorally need them during, you know, we like that. It's an investment. It's not a tax that you're paying and it's not something that you just give to out of the generosity of your heart. It's something that we all are a part of because we enjoy what we're doing here. And I think that what we're doing here is beautiful. And I think that if you benefit from it, um, then you should also be prepared to contribute to it. So we should give willingly, generously, without compulsion or guilt. And if you feel um, a sense of compulsion or guilt from me now, um, I would encourage you to feel a sense of conviction uh, about wanting to contribute. But I don't want you to feel bad. And if you are legitimately not able to contribute financially, find another way to contribute. Um, I, don't want, I don't want anyone to think, oh, geez, I can't have a cup of coffee or a meal or I can't turn up to church because I don't have any money. That's crazy. That's why we don't talk about money every week or make it obvious who's giving what and who isn't giving what. Um, please don't feel... Um, um, don't feel you know, like that. That would be awful. That's not the outcome that we want. We should give with joy and thanksgiving. And you know what? I reckon that when we do that, we have, always have enough. I don't worry about tomorrow. I plan and budget for tomorrow. That's why we have the pledge, so that we can be responsible. But I don't worry about tomorrow. So as they were coming down from the mountain, there's my um, way to shoehorn tithing into my message. Um, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Um, now, the secrecy thing we could talk about another time. But what I want to point out here uh, seems like a pretty dull, uh, very simple observation. And that is this. They came down from the mountain. Peter wanted to stay at the top of the mountain. That's why he wanted to build houses. He wanted to get comfy. He wanted to be there forever. He didn't want to come back down. So I'm glad that it's very explicit here. They definitely came back down from the mountain. So many Christians... They want to live at the top of the mountain. I don't know, pick your metaphor. They want to wade into the river and never leave. They're going to drown. They want to go to the, uh, the mountaintop experience and have that ecstatic experience and never leave that. So they're constantly trying to manufacture a manifestation of a shining, glorious Jesus. Um, they're desperate for feathers. Or they're desperate for gold dust and diamonds. They're desperate for that because it's just what's keeping them going. And that's what Peter does. I'm not saying when Jesus leads you up a mountain, you shouldn't enjoy the experience, but I'm saying at some point, you've got to come back down to earth. You can't just sing 20 more choruses and expect that Jesus will be like, all right, we'll just stay a little longer. Build me a tent. 
Jesus didn't come down from heaven and become flesh so that he could stay at the top of the mountain. He did it so that he could come down and be with people and die for them. Because the real ministry of Jesus' life wasn't on top of that mountain. It was down with people. It was with the woman who was caught in adultery protecting her. It was with the, 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 the woman at the well and it was with the Samaritan. Um, uh, it was with the tax collector or Zacchaeus. Or, you know, like Jesus' real ministry wasn't on top of a hill. He took three people to that one. So if you've been part of that ecstatic experience, good for you. But you've got to come back down and build the kingdom of God and get on with the work of the ministry. The mountaintop experience is amazing. But the work of the kingdom is found in the daily walking with Jesus. You see, there is a manifestation of the Spirit, but there is also the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is what we work on daily. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So we want, to, we want to grow in those things, not just the manifestation of the Spirit, which I love and think is beautiful and wonderful and wish that we would all experience. But we also need to come down from the mountain. We've got to get in there and wash people's feet, create spaces where people can be free of condemnation and shame. We need to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit those who've been imprisoned. We need to love our neighbours, including our foreign neighbours and our orphan neighbours and our gay neighbours and our sick neighbours and our rich and poor neighbours. We even need to love our enemies. We need to love God, not money. We need to store up our treasures in heaven. We need to be faithful, sacrificial, joyful givers. And we need to put down our stones and turn the other cheek and forgive those who've wronged us and always hold to the truth. And you know what? I reckon the absolute best way that we can do that is together. I think that when we gather together, we can encourage and inspire, but we can also support and we can also care for. Uh, And I like doing that with you guys. I love doing that with you guys. Um, uh, and, you know, not, this is not a perfect community, uh, but I do love you. And I think that that's a really good start. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you, um, that you became flesh. I want to thank you that you went up to the mountain and made it very clear that the law and the prophets was the old way, but you are the new way. You are the way, the truth, the life. So I pray that we would get down uh, from that mountain, that we would experience those, those joys with you, but we would also get down to the work uh, that happens in the daily life of doing faith. I pray that you would inspire us and encourage us and compel us to be generous and kind. And I pray that you would bless this community and through that be a blessing uh, to your world. In Jesus' name, amen.